what is going on inside the heart and mind. Uh, it would be a contradiction here if he were saying they cannot wear jewelry. Because if you go to Ezekiel 16, you'll find that Christ himself uh, will adorn his bride with golds and gold and jewels and, and uh, fine clothing. So it's not wrong to wear those things. It's wrong to make them the emphasis. It's wrong to make them the important thing. And I think we can see that principle fairly easily when we look at a lot of women out in this world today that their uh, main info emphasis is their hair, their clothes, their makeup, how they look, and you have all kinds of anti-aging creams and anti-getting uh, old stuff of all kinds to fix the skin, fix the hair, color the hair, uh, you name it, to make people look better physically. And uh, Peter's simply saying that's the wrong emphasis. You can wear jewelry. I think the Bible is fairly clear in showing that makeup is wrong. But jewelry is not if used modestly and it does not become the emphasis of look at me, look at me uh, but it is that which is inside which is by far the most important a meek and quiet spirit is pretty rare among American women today uh, they're outspoken and brash and so on in ways that sometimes are not right but a meek and quiet spirit is of great price in the sight of God. So we have to work at finding a balance between, sure, being able to communicate, being able to use a mind, and women have very fine minds. They're a little different than men's minds, uh, but that doesn't make them inferior. <laughs> they have very great qualities and abilities to see and understand. So it isn't a put-down of women. It is that God put the man in charge of a family, and he is to be the leader. That means he has to learn leadership qualities, not pick a tube before up and say, I'm the leader here. The leadership qualities are mercy and forgiveness and kindness, gentleness, service, uh, obedience to God. Those are the things that a man is to lead in not just say I make the decisions around here because God said I could uh, that's just a totally different and wrong attitude on his part and if a man has that kind of an attitude <laughs> it's very hard for a woman to remain in and maintain a meek and quiet spirit because she's being emotionally and spiritually abused by someone who may not have leadership qualities but just does it because he's bigger and stronger and says God put him in charge. That doesn't work. doesn't work at all. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. So they did have some jewelry. They did adorn themselves. They didn't just leave their hair in a scraggly mess. They combed it. They took care of it. So, But they did not emphasize that. They emphasized serving and helping and loving their husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well, and this doesn't 
naturally want to be. Uh, as long as it doesn't uh, destroy your attitude of, toward God and toward man. So God says here that women are supposed to be in subjection. They are to be meek and quiet in spirit. And they are to give great honor and respect to their husbands. That is the way that it is supposed to be. Now, he doesn't leave it at that. In verse 7, he addresses the husbands. And he says, Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. <laughs> Isn't that what I just said? If you lead in terms of study and understanding and knowledge of God, <clears throat> then your wife can follow you because you are leading in a right direction toward godliness proper knowledge, the truths of God. And then he says, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Uh, she's not as strong physically. She's not as big physically generally. Uh, and you need to give honor and respect to her, realizing that she was made and designed as a helpmate, a help meet or fit for you, and not abuse her and misuse her uh, emotionally, verbally, spiritually, or in any other way. We think of physical abuse, which is terrible, but sometimes emotional and spiritual abuse can be even more painful in some respects than physical abuse. I've heard people say, and I've said it myself, I'd rather take a physical beating than go through what I'm going through emotionally. So we have to be careful as husbands to be sure we're dwelling according to God's knowledge and His way, not our vain, egocentric, selfish way, and give honor to her. Uh, we are heirs together of the grace of light that says that your prayers be not hindered. So we are mutually equal, if you will. We are heirs together, husband and wife, of the promises of God. So our relationship then as heirs together needs to reflect the relationship between Christ, the bridegroom, and the church's wife-to-be. A husband needs to act toward his wife as Christ does toward the church. Uh, with ever-enduring mercy, patience, kindness, love, and gentleness, uh, he needs to be strong where he needs to be strong, but he should find ways to lead her without abusing her. Because you are heirs together, and one is not better than the other. Understand the difference. One is not better than or superior to the other. They're heirs together, equally. Now, a man may have been put in charge, but that doesn't make him better than the woman. He is not better by simply by the fact that he grows hair on his face. He is there as an equal, but he is to be the leader, which puts more responsibility on him and also more accountability. To whom much is given, much is required. So if a husband is given more authority, more power, then he is going to be held accountable for how he uses that. So it's two-way street here as co-heirs together. Uh, in verse 8 then, 
Finally, be you all of one mind. God wants us to be unified. He wants us to be of one mind, seeing things the same way. Uh, you can go through 1 Corinthians 12 and see how the body is to fit together so that there is no uh, uh, division, so that there's no strife, but to fit together perfectly and operate as a body should. And if one member hurt, they all hurt. If you sprain your ankle, your whole body hurts from the top of your head down to that ankle. Uh, and that's the way it should be. It's the way God intended the church to be. Uh, but one mind, having compassion one of another. Everybody has trials, troubles, tribulations, weaknesses, faults, so on. And we can either be compassionate, uh, we don't need to be enabling to allow them to continue in whatever they're doing that's wrong, wrong attitudes, wrong approaches, or whatever. You can't approve those. You can't enable them. But if someone is having difficulties, we can have compassion and pity upon them and do what we can to help them. Love as brothers. Be of pity or pitiful. And be courteous. Kind, gentle, hospitable. Uh, showing courtesy to each other. Uh, not picking at each other all the time, not putting each other down, not being negative toward one another, but courteous, uh, hospitable are, are words that would fit very well with the attitude that we should have. Is love, and not say things to them or do things to them that we would not like done to us. Sometimes with our humor, we need to be a little more careful because if we're picking at people too much, sometimes... We wouldn't want to be treated that way, but we sure are willing to treat somebody else that way. So we need to be very careful and be courteous and loving and kind to each other. Not rendering evil for evil. If somebody treats you bad, you don't treat them bad back. You just don't do that. We render good for evil. It's just or railing for railing, whether it's something outright evil they do to us, we're not to return it, and even if they rant and rave and rail against us, we're not to return that. We're to turn the other cheek. Uh, but contrary-wise, blessing. Instead of evil for evil and ranting and raving for ranting and raving, we return blessing. Now, that is not an easy chore. It is very hard to do. But that's what he tells us we should do when we have situations where we are being accused or railed at and, and evil done toward us. We should return blessing. Sometimes that's hard to even know what to do or how to go about it, but we need to find a way. Knowing that you are thereunto called, that you should inherit a blessing. Now, God called us for the purpose of giving us eternal life in his kingdom. And since we have that offered to us, we need to offer blessing to others, even if they are treating us wrongly. Because that's God has offered us blessing, and he wants us to offer blessing to others. So sometimes we need a little attitude adjustment. Uh, we need to adjust our thinking and our tongues to be sure that we are complying 
way God expects us to uh, react to others. For he that will love life and seek good days, do you want to love life? Do you want life to be good so that you can love it? There are people who get in such situations emotionally, mentally, where they come to even hate life. They hate the way life is. They may not want to actually give it up in most cases, but they don't like the way things are. Well, it says if you want to love life and if you want to see good days, not bad days, how many people look forward to a bad day? Well, none of us. We all like good days. Not all days are good, but we like good ones. So if you would be in a position where you can love life and see good days, here's what you have to do. <laughs> Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. There's one of the keys to having good days and a good life that you can enjoy is to keep your big mouth shut and refrain from speaking evil. Let him hate evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now sometimes we tend to go neutral we don't want to fight, and yet we don't want to seek after peace either. So if we can put it neutral and idle along, we think that's good enough. That isn't what God says. He said, seek peace, pursue it. Try to accomplish it in whatever way you possibly can. <laughs> now, <clears throat> that should be our overall attitude, day in and day out, through life, is to... Try to be a peaceful person, as Paul put it, be at peace with all people as much as is possible, as much as it lies within you, you try to be peaceful. Now, let's contrast that on a spiritual level with Satan. Are we supposed to be making peace with Satan? No. Well, there again, Paul says that our, our enemies are spiritual. And we fight against Satan and the demons. And we're not to be around them. We're not to have anything to do with them. We're supposed to resist the devil and flee from him and seek God. I think Peter even says that a little later, which we'll get to. Uh, so we're not to have anything to do with Satan. You can't make peace with Satan. He is not peaceful. He does not want peace. He has no inclination for peace. He will never accept God's offering of peace. He will always be a rebel and a tyrant and against God and against man. He wants to destroy us all. So when we take when we take this out to the spiritual battle that we face, we need to be making peace with God and getting close to God. And we need to resist and stay away from Satan, not even be around it, because evil attitudes affect us, and they can destroy us. So we stay away from Satan. Now, we seek peace as a goal and as a purpose with our brothers and sisters, other human beings on this earth, whether it be in the Walmart parking lot or whether it be in church or wherever it is, we are to to not be uh, progenitor
matters of road rage. We're not to, to be picking fights. <laughs> We're to try to seek peace and be honorable. If others want to make fights and wars and road raids, that's their business. But we don't respond to that. We shouldn't. We should try to go a peaceful way. Now, when you have people who are demon-possessed or demon-influenced, uh, then it is better to stay away from those people because the only way you can have peace with them is to not be around them, just as with Satan. You can't have peace with Satan. So you don't go around him. You stay away from him. And the same is true of people who are influenced by Satan, who are living a life a life of lies and chicanery and negativity and uh, just an ungodly approach. Uh, generally speaking, if you're around evil, it will influence you to evil more than being around good will influence people to good. It just goes that way because primarily of human nature and what it is. Human nature is contrary to God. It's deceitful and desperately wicked. The works of the flesh of any normal human being are listed there in Galatians as being uh, idolatry and adultery and fornication and anger and lawlessness and selfishness and thievery and killing and, and all those things. And if some if people are in those attitudes, then we need to essentially stay away from them unless we be influenced to evil. So there's a, a balance here between, between what Peter is saying and what he means in principle uh, is that our attitude as we go through life should be one of peacemaker, of trying to deal with evil by not railing back against it, uh, not fighting it, essentially staying away with it, away from it, but being peaceful whenever we can be peaceful. And, and even if we have hatred and anger against us, we need to be sure we do not react in the same attitude because what is happening there? Evil is influencing us to also be evil. So you don't reply that way. You reply in a positive way or you simply stay away in order to have peace. And sometimes seeking and pursuing peace is by getting away from an unpeaceful situation where peace cannot be had at any price, Satan being the absolute epitome of that and that attitude. But people can be satanic in their approach. So you don't render evil for evil. You render good. But if that good is not accepted then you simply stay away from where peace cannot be had under normal circumstances. <laughs> Verse 12, For the eyes of the eternal are over the righteous. He's looking at, he's, his attention is on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. Now, if we are evil, uh, God says he hears not sinners. So we need to be very, very careful that our attitudes and our approach in life are good and not evil. He says, I'll hear your prayers if you'll, if you'll be righteous. But the face of the eternal is against them that do evil. Now, he turned his face from the church. He says that clearly throughout the prophecies. We've read it in several places. 
So if we're doing evil, his face is against us, and he did turn it away from us. Now what we are trying to do is become righteous and serve him with fervency and love and turn to him with all our heart, and then he says he will turn his face back to us. Several places he says that. But that is what we have to do in order to get that to happen. Now, a soft message right now is not a message that God wants the church to have. There are a lot of people that are putting out members or ministers who are in split-offs in the church of God who are giving uh, nice, gentle, loving, uh, family-oriented sermons just like they used to in Worldwide Church of God. That wasn't enough for God. God blew it apart because of that approach. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to have, uh, let's say, family life or uh, godly living sermons. It's not wrong to do that. But they need to be, we need to be sure they are undergirded with power and strength to stir up people to do what they need to be doing, not letting them continue to be Laodicea. There's a vast difference in that. There were a lot of good sermons given in Worldwide. I even gave a few myself, I think, over the years. A lot of ministers gave a lot of good family-living, child-rearing, godly-living sermons. But God was not pleased with our level of obedience and righteousness and fervency, and he blew us apart. So now we need urgent messages. We need things to push us, to pull us, to overcome and to grow. We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. We are not to sit still. He will only grant to be in his kingdom those who overcome. He said that to all seven of the churches of Revelation 2 and 3. All have to overcome. Even those who like to call themselves Philadelphia and say we have no problem, God did not criticize us. Well, he did say overcome. That must mean there's something wrong with Philadelphians too. If they're told to overcome, or they are. So if we want God to turn his face back to us and smile upon us and bless us, then we have to increase our personal level of righteousness beyond what it was in Worldwide Church of God. That was not good enough. Mine wasn't, yours wasn't. We all have to change and grow. And it doesn't matter where we are at the moment, we have to change. And God says if the wicked turn to righteousness, he will bless them. If the righteous turn to wickedness, he will curse them. Ezekiel 33 makes it very, very clear. And we all answer for our own sins, not somebody else's. I even heard somebody recently had said that, well, your salvation and your righteousness is my responsibility. No, it's not. Not at all. Each person answers for himself. Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, they answer for themselves, God says. Not to each other. (laughs) So you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, God says. Not anybody else's. If you're trying to work out somebody else's salvation and make them righteous, you need to fold your wings and put them in a box and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and let them work theirs out. Now, that doesn't mean we can't pray for each other, and we should, and try to help.
help one another, but we are not in any way responsible for someone else's salvation. That's between Christ and the Father and us. No one else. People say because there's a hierarchical government in the church, the ministry is trying to put themselves between uh, the members and God. That's malarkey. It's baloney. That's a misuse of a of a power structure. The church, the ministry, does not stand between a member and God at all. They are responsible, each of them, for their own salvation. The minister is there to help them, to guide them, to lead them, to point them toward Christ so that they get their relationship right with Him and with the Father. He is not between them and God. They can pray directly to God anytime they want to. That's what the veil of the temple being wind and plain was all about. The churches, that is the ministry's responsibility as leaders of the church, as God says they should be, their responsibility is to be to the side, more or less, like a mother. A mother does not keep the children from direct access to their father. She is there to point the children to dad, to help build their relationship with their father, and with herself as well, of course, but primarily her job is the helper in the family to point to the leader who is, who is, who is the physical father. That's the position of the ministry. They're here to help the church, to help the members in pointing them to God. Now, they also have authority even to excommunicate, to penalize, to suspend, uh, or whatever needs to be done to help someone get their relationship with God right if it has gone absolutely off track and, and wrong like it was in First Corinthians 5 with the incest. Paul said, put that person out. Now, there's a good case where they were to be making peace with that person because the person was in a wrong, ungodly attitude and in a wrong relationship. So they were to stay away from that person in order for peace to be in the church, a righteous peace. And when that person repented and got rid of that relationship, then Paul said, let him back in, treat him as a brother, because he's repented. So you can't hold grudges against people who have had sin or been sinners. If they repent, if they change it, that's to be left behind. It's to be forgotten. Then you can be at peace with them because their attitude and their actions have straightened out. That's the way it is to be. (laughs) People misunderstand and they think that, well, the ministry is just trying to lord it over us and to be between us and God. No, they aren't. They're there to point you to God to help you with your prayers and your study and your relationship with God. That's why I'm speaking today, is to help you in your relationship with God, to do the things Peter here is saying need to be done, and God agrees with everything Peter wrote because he canonized it as Scripture. So it's my job to read, to expound, to try to put what Peter said in words that will help you with your life. It's my job to help you get more out of Peter than you might have just reading it on your own. To help you get closer to God. His ears are open to your prayers if you will be righteous. 
verse 13, and who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Well, generally speaking, and in principle, if you're doing what is right, you're not lying and stealing and stealing and cheating. You're doing, you're being morally responsible. Uh, you're being a mature human being seeking God's ways. Uh, you know, who's going to harm you if you're doing that? Generally, no one. But there are exceptions. Christ was following that which is good. He was obeying God absolutely perfectly, and yet he was the most hated individual of his generation. Uh, and he had done no wrong. So he's making a, a statement in principle here. Is that generally if you're doing good, you're not hurting people and abusing people, uh, they're not going to harm you. But and if, he explains, but and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. So you may be doing what's good and still suffer as a result of it. Because people simply don't like you, or they're jealous of you, or they trump up things about you like they did with Christ, or whatever. Uh, and if you suffer for that, be happy with that. Don't be afraid of their terror, and don't be troubled or frustrated beyond, I mean, maybe you can't avoid a little frustration, but happy. Because if you're obeying God and you're serving Him, and you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're going to be blessed. God will remember that, because you are not returning railing for railing, and evil for evil, but you are accepting whatever people bring up against you. If you're not doing it, what's the big deal? Be thankful to God that you can follow Him, and He's not the one angry at you, but somebody else is trying to harm you. You know, we have a long way to go. Sometimes people have done something to you maybe five years, ten years, fifteen, thirty, forty years ago, and you still have an attitude about it. Husband and wives do it all the time. Something comes up, they get upset with each other, and they remind each other of things that happened decades ago. That's not fair. It's not right. God forgave those things a long time ago. And it is not fair for us to bring them up. We're supposed to grow beyond that. We should deal with whatever problems we have currently and try to resolve and solve and fix them and get along and love one another. Bringing up the past is totally unfair. It's not fighting right. You're going to fight, fight fair. What is done is done. God himself says in the book of Lamentations, he gives us a new start every morning. Are we willing to do that with each other? Well, if, if you're suffering for doing what is right, you should be happy and not be in terror or troubled. Just accept it and say, okay. Uh, now, if you're doing something wrong, you need to repent of that because then you're not suffering for righteousness' sake. But if you truly are doing what's right and you suffer for that, be thankful. Because it just simply shows that somebody else doesn't have the attitude of God. They have the attitude of Satan. 
glorify the eternal God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason for the hope that lies within you with with meekness and fear. Now what is the hope that lies within us? What is your greatest hope? That you get a raise at work? Or that you get healed of some physical illness or malady that you may have? Uh, do you, is your greatest hope finding a, a mate, a good one? Is your greatest hope living a long life or having a new car? Our greatest hope is the resurrection of the dead. Our greatest hope is to be in the kingdom of God. Now that's the hope we need to be able to answer for. This life means ultimately nothing. All this life is for is to give us an opportunity to set aside human tendencies and human nature and to act and react like God so that he has absolute confidence that based on how we handle things here, we will never rebel against him in his way. Satan has the way that mankind has from Adam until today. That is the main thing that we are trying to do with God, is to show him that we will be faithful and loyal and true to him and to his son as his bride forevermore. That we will never stray, we will never be unfaithful, we will never sin. We will never go against his way of peace and life and love. We will always love him more than anything else in the universe and love each other as much as we love ourselves throughout eternity. That is why we are here going through what we're going through. That's the hope that lies within us. And you should always be ready to give an answer for that. This isn't a situation where we're just talking about doctrine. People say, well, I always have to have the right doctrinal answer. Somebody asks me. No, you need an answer for the hope of the resurrection. And the answer to that is, I'm serving God the best I can. I'm doing all I can. I'm repenting when I do wrong. I want to serve Him with all my heart, mind, body, and soul so I can be in the resurrection of the dead. And none of us will be perfect, and that's why the grace of Christ and the mercy and patience of God comes into play. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, so we all deserve to die. But Christ, in his death and resurrection, gives us hope for a resurrection of our own. And that's what we need to be uh, focusing on, setting aside God in our hearts not setting aside a new car or a new house or land or clothes or whatever it is that we like on this earth. No, sanctify God in our hearts. You know how much land you're going to get? About six feet long and about two and a half feet wide. That's all the land you're going to come wind up with. You might own hundreds of thousands of acres like Ted Turner but you're going to get about a six foot by two and a half. That's all you're going to get. And you won't even enjoy it. You won't have a 
million homes, wives, husbands, and come and follow him. So land and homes, cars, even our own blood kid, we have to walk away from sometimes in order to obey God. He even tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that sometimes we have to leave a mate in order to obey God and that we're not bound to them any longer if that's the reason that we left. So God has to be all in all. He has to be first and foremost in our minds. Set him aside in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Why meekness and fear? Because God holds the keys to life eternal or death eternally. So we need to be meek and not spiritually proud and self-righteous and brag to each other about how much we pray or study or do it out in the street, but do it quietly and personally at home and quietly serve God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul and not be spiritually proud and put ourselves above other organizations or above other groups. God has his faithful scattered throughout all the splinters of the church of God and even on their couches at home sometimes when they can't find any place that they feel they can go where they can learn and grow. But he knows where they are, and he will gather them. He's promised that. So we need to be meek and not put ourselves above anyone else. What do most of them do? We're the Philadelphians, and you're the Laodiceans. That's not meekness. That's not the right attitude that's what they do. We're supposed to have fear involved. The minute you proclaim, I'm a, lady, I'm a Philadelphian and I've got it made, you don't have any fear. You're expecting that just because you consider yourself a Philadelphian, you've got it made. And everybody else there is going into tribulation because they're not the same group you're in. That's self-righteousness. That's unholiness. Verse 16, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed to falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. Make sure our conduct is right before God. And then it doesn't make any difference what people say because they are not our judges. God in heaven is. Christ is. And if we obey and serve him with a good conscience, repenting of our sins, changing, growing as we can, rooting out sin and the beam out of our own eye, then that's what we're supposed to be doing. Verse 17, For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. You're going to suffer anyway. At least suffer for doing good, not evil. And if you've been doing evil, quit it. Stop it. And then they can't bring it against you anymore, can they? No, because if you stop it, God forgives it. It is men who don't forgive. Be, be thankful to God that man is not our judge. Men try to judge us. Men try to condemn us. But if we are growing and overcoming and changing and putting sin out, God will forgive us, and it doesn't make a bit of difference what anybody else thinks of you. You should be in a point where you could care less. Isn't that what he said up above? Be happy. Don't be afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Be, be 
he's explaining more down here. Don't worry about it. doesn't matter what they think. Only care what God thinks. If you're doing what pleases God, then you will be doing what should please men. And if it doesn't please men, then it becomes their problem, not yours. Better to suffer for well-doing than for evil. Now, verse 18, For Christ also, as one suffered, for sins, the just for the unjust. He was just. He was obedient. And he suffered. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So even Christ himself, who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and the one who will be in charge under his Father throughout all eternity does not put us himself between us and God. Now, is he in charge? Does he have authority? Yes, he does. He has the highest authority that can be conferred in the universe upon him from his Father. And yet the veil of the temple was split in twain giving us access directly to the Father. We still have to go through the Son, yes. It has to be in His name, because He is the one who suffered and died for us. So we still have to go through Him. Now, we don't have to go through the ministry, because they didn't suffer and die for us. We have direct access through Christ to the Father. He suffered and died for us. He didn't sin at all. We have, and therefore, his death is there to atone for our sin, and his resurrection is to give us hope for the resurrection, the hope of the dead. The hope of the dead is the resurrection. So he suffered for sins, and he was quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, uh, which sometime were disobedient, when, once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now, was he preaching to demons who had been bound and could not be turned loose? Was he preaching to disobedient people who would not serve God while Noah prepared the ark? Now, preaching to the demons... I don't know that that really could do any good. But you have a chance of human beings who are disobedient, and they all were before Noah's Ark floated, might have a chance to help them, although they did not repent and only eight were saved when it was all said and done. The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Christ. Now, does that mean we're to sin? The grace may abound? No, as Paul said. But it isn't us repenting of sin that gives us opportunity to be in the kingdom of God. Because any sin we've committed, we have to suffer the death penalty for unless there is forgiveness. And the only forgiveness is in Christ. So it is by His grace, His pardon, in His payment, penalty, the resurrection of Christ that gives us hope for the resurrection. So 
it by never sinning and being good all the time. You'll never accomplish that in the first place. And you just being good is not enough. We have to have forgiveness in Christ and resurrection through Christ. So it isn't on us, it's on Him. But we are also told that we are to have good works, that we are to overcome and to grow and to put sin out. That is our part. But even if we do our part, we cannot grant ourselves salvation. So do your part, and then expect Christ to do his part. That's the way it works. Who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. There's the hope of the resurrection, is that Christ is not dead, but he is alive today. And he can resurrect us at the time of the resurrection. So there is great hope in the fact that we have Christ there for us. We have no hope in ourselves. We can't save ourselves. That's up to him. We can do our best to put ourselves in a position where we are righteous and he hears our prayers and answers and we can come to have a good and lively hope that if we do our part, we can be assured he will do his.